1: That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Next Monday marks 25 years since the signing of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement. And
0: today's historic agreement marks a new beginning for all of us in Northern Ireland on the island of Ireland and in these islands.
1: Under the agreement, representatives from unionist and nationalist political parties established a devolved government for Northern Ireland, one that would work on the principle that power had to be shared between the two communities. It took years of negotiations, multiple failed ceasefires and huge concessions. It also required outside help, the involvement of London and Dublin, but also a third party, a mediator of sorts, one that could promise serious political an economic muscle. After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. That third party was the United States, specifically President Bill Clinton, now celebrated as one of the key players behind the agreement. But Clinton didn't do it alone. For a long time, his administration balked at the prospect of getting involved. It took years of background efforts, secret meetings, discreet lobbying and high-risk shadow diplomacy by people whose names are hardly known. This week, I speak to one of those people who tells me the extraordinary story of how he built a secret channel between Bill Clinton and the Irish Republican movement. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
0: Well, Ireland was a very different place then, Jonathan. It was very, very priest-ridden, uninteresting, dull. Nothing like today, where there's a whole vibrancy to it—a youth culture. Back then, it was the
1: over- Neil O'Dowd is an Irish-American journalist who first moved to the U.S. in the 1970s on a student visa. He overstayed that visa and, for a few years, lived as an undocumented immigrant. It was at that time he launched his own Irish-American newspaper. Irishman, and he would go on to produce new outlets, Irish Central, Irish America, and the Irish Voice.
0: Well, the first thing you have to know is that Irish-American history begins with a famine and becomes a radical history very quickly, and Irish-Americans take that radical history with them in their heart. So there was a very rich, unexplored history of the role of the Irish in America in Irish Revolution, basically. So I became very immersed in that and still am to this day. I just delivered a major lecture over St. Patrick's Day on the impact of the Irish famine on the American Civil War which is where the extra tens of thousands of soldiers that General Grant needed to defeat the Confederates uh, ultimately in the final battles that they were mostly Irish from famine era Irish who went to America to fight for for freedom as they saw it. 140,000 enlisted in the Union
1: Army. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that. It means that the Irish story and the American story are intertwined with each other. Absolutely. It's,
0: it's uh, the relationship of somebody who aspires to be an American and Americans who aspire to be Irish. And between the two identities, forges this Irish-American identity, which is much more
1: complex than people would, would think. And, and you feel that no more keenly than you do in politics, in American politics. And, you know, it's now something which is easily parodied the way American politicians, especially if they're running for president, especially if they're running for, you know, office in uh, Boston or in Massachusetts, areas of New York, Will claim Irish lineage and Irish heritage. Ronald Reagan did it, obviously, with you know, with backing, and Joe Biden does it. My grandfather
0: Ambrose Finnegan, who was uh, a great football player, American football, and a newspaper man, back at the turn of the nineteenth of the twentieth century, uh, used to always say, when later, when he was much older, and I'd walk out of his home, he'd say, "Joey, remember, the best drop of blood in
1: you is Irish." <laughs> But if you talk politics and you talk Ireland in the United States, people will always think of the Kennedy family. And Ted Kennedy is a crucial figure in the story you're, you're going to tell, that we're going to talk about. And you had direct connection with him and, and contact with him. But just walk us through how a then very young would be newspaper man in the United States, I think you must have just been in your 30s, I would guess, you only recently had been living illegally. How did you get to, even in the orbit of then-Senator Edward Ted Kennedy?
0: Well, it, it's quite a funny story, but my newspaper circulated heavily in the Irish district of the Sunset in San Francisco, which is a very large number of Irish, young Irish population and Irish-American population. And it, it happened that Philip Burton was a very powerful congressman for the area, And I became interested in the local political arena. For instance, Nancy Pelosi was just coming up at the time. I actually went to a Democratic Party meeting and met her. So I was around it. And then I found when when Phil Burton passed away, there was a hugely competitive race for his successor. And it so happened that an awful lot of the votes that they needed were in this Irish neighbourhood where I had a very strong Irish newspaper. So they invited me to a reception with Ted Kennedy because they wanted my endorsement. And so I went to the reception just as I was uh, arriving at it, Ted Kennedy arrived. And I was rushed up to the top of the queue and introduced as the leading newspaper man in San Francisco. And Ted Kennedy shook my hand and said, you're doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) He had no idea on earth who I was. But um, that was an auspicious beginning, starting with Ted Kennedy in San Francisco back in probably 1982.
1: So it goes back a long way. You, though, developed a conviction, and it's going to culminate in when this new man appears on the horizon, Bill Clinton. But even before then, you developed this conviction that, in a way, the, the, the dog that hadn't barked, if you like, in the Northern Ireland conflict, the, the role that had not been played was particularly the United States. You felt that if America got involved, things could change. Just tell us what that sort of starting assumption was, and then how that led you you know, through, in a way, Ted Kennedy, ultimately to the man who was going to become president.
0: Well, if we look at the history of Irish America, there are two items that are constantly at top of the agenda. One is Northern Ireland and one is immigration. And I spent most of my working life working on both those issues. Um, But I knew that there was an Irish-American tiger out there waiting to be unleashed. But he couldn't be unleashed in the form he was in, which was looked on as very inward and backward and very pro-violence. It had to be something better than that. And I tried to create a, a different kind of Irish America where people would Be uh, of a high caliber, who would know people who knew people who would be strong and influential in American politics, not just Irish-American politics. And I found working on the immigration issue, which I did a lot of work on, just how powerful the Irish vote was. Because when you went to Capitol Hill, as I did often, every door was open to you just by the fact that you were Irish. And I said, this is an amazing resource. And it goes back to being there at the right time and mixing with these Irish-Americans like Ted Kennedy and then leveraging that to help her uh, in
1: any way I could to country I'd left behind. So your sense was that there was an opportunity here. There was the possibility, potential for movement in Northern Ireland and potentially that could be unlocked if Washington got involved. And it's right at the beginning of the 90s Even before he was much talked about, that you spotted and other Irish Americans spotted the then very young governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, who was launching what at the time seemed a really improbable bid to be president. The
0: real thing that matters is not our yesterdays, but our tomorrows.
1: Just tell us what it was about him early on that made you think this could be somebody who might help in Northern Ireland.
0: Well, really, in the context of the Irish-American community, the major block of voters would be very much in favour of a candidate who favoured action in Ireland. But it would be hard to discover a candidate because of the alliance between the United States and Britain, which has gone over 200 years, obviously. The American government were very reluctant to get involved in anything to do with Northern Ireland. And my thinking was that There was no votes in that position. Irish Americans were a sleeping giant. Let's try and identify some people who would maybe take a different look at this and look at it from the point of view of a good vehicle for an election. But what was fascinating about Clinton was he was a complete outsider. He was from Arkansas. He had no Irish heritage worth talking about. and He was a guy who had none of the baggage of the issue, which almost every politician in Washington had. So identifying him became a fact when we formed an organisation called Irish Americans for Clinton. And we secured a meeting with him and I was astonished when I had that meeting with him uh, to discover that he had spent time in Oxford during the height of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and was extremely familiar with figures like Bernadette Devlin and John Hume to get a governor of Arkansas. Who was interested in Ireland and then would go on to be president was really a jackpot for us
1: because, you know, most people thought it would never happen. You mention his experience in Oxford. He was a Rhodes Scholar, famously in Oxford in the late sixties. Writers, you know, Bloody Sunday was happening as the troubles were just kicking off, and as I understand it, he saw a parallel between the civil rights struggle that was going on from Catholics in Northern Ireland with African-Americans in the South, in his home region of the United States. And he thought that one had similarities, echoes with the other. And just as he supported the struggle for civil rights in the American South, he thought that means you've got to support civil rights in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I think
0: that's a very fair assessment, Jonathan. He, He was clearly very up to date on Northern Ireland, which really surprised me because he was not from an Irish-leaning state in terms of identifying Arkansas. But he was clearly very interested, as you say, in the context of civil rights, in the context that the songs that the civil rights movement sang in Northern Ireland were the songs of Martin Luther King and the poetry of Martin Luther King, We Should Overcome, and all those venerable hymns that became so important to black people and, indeed, to people in Northern Ireland who are being viciously discriminated against. And when I had a meeting with him at last, um, which happened in February 1992, he said to me, I really want to do something on Ireland, which you're talking about 200 years, no American president had ever lifted a finger, not even JFK, in a really significant way on Ireland. But here was a candidate who was running, who was announcing quite seriously to me that he was interested and was going to work on the Northern Irish issue. And that made a great headline for me. And from that moment on, Bill Clinton and the Irish could do no wrong together.
1: And it was then, I think it was in the New York primary uh, where he needed votes of Irish Americans. And you had that meeting. He said, I think the words to you were that, you know, Northern Ireland is on my radar. I'm aware of it. He goes on to win the Democratic nomination. He wins the presidency, he up, you know, defeats. Uh, the elder George Bush. And then, as president, I, I think it, it will you tell, tell me, I mean, how then he advances that initial expression to you of interest that turns into a role where you are, in effect, a kind of unofficial go between between Clinton's White House and the Irish Republican movement. And by which we don't just mean Sinn Fein, but also the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. I mean, just tell us how that came about. Well, when Clinton took office, uh, he had made a number
0: of promises, and like all good politicians, he broke every one of them <laughs> initially. But what had happened in the meantime was I had thought about what was it that could be done in Northern Ireland if Bill Clinton became a major player. And one of the most interesting trips I made, Jonathan, was to Northern Ireland and met Cherry Adams and met leaders of Sinn Féin. And, and I found him very open. I was astonished about how welcoming they were. And, of course, the fact was the British had effectively sealed them off. But, in fact, there was a groundswell of opinion within the Republican movement following the death of Bobby Sands on on hunger strike that now was the time to build a political plan for the future and that the days of armed conflict would hopefully be over in the context of going down a political path. And I put a proposal to them and the proposal was that I would put together a group of Irish Americans like no other had ever been. I would come to Ireland with them and we would meet them and we would meet all the leaders in Northern Ireland. And we would then report back to the White House and tell them that there was hope and definite opportunity for Clinton to intervene.
1: So you went in there with this proposal that in effect you were saying, look, you, we will offer you a chance to come in from the cold to have... Uh, an international outlet at last, recognition from the United States. And in return, we need a signal from you that you're serious. And that would be perhaps in the form of even just a seven day long ceasefire for the period you're there. But just to go one step back, I can't resist this just because the actual tradecraft of this is so amazing. Before you get to meet Adams and McGuinness, the senior leadership, of the Republican movement, you have to meet an intermediary. And it's like something out of a spy movie, this encounter you have in the bar of a hotel, right down to how you're going to recognize each other. Just tell us something about that, that encounter.
0: Yeah, well, the guy I was meeting was uh, really an extraordinary guy. I, I subsequently identified him. And we've been talking for years now, Ted Hall, And he was the head of foreign affairs essentially Sinn Féin's foreign minister. So I arranged to meet him, as you say, in very cloak-and-dagger fashion in a run-down hotel pub in Dublin on a very rainy Tuesday morning, walking in and seeing him sitting behind the counter with a pint of Guinness and the
1: Irish Times. Because that was the pre-arranged signal, right? You will to look for a man reading the Irish Times with a pint of Guinness at 11.30 in the morning.
0: But as I said to him, the only other two people in the room were a priest and a nun, so it was definitely going to be him. (laughs) At this point, I had access to White House um, through Senator Kennedy. I had managed to reach out to Nancy Soderbergh, who was Kennedy's former staffer on Northern Ireland, who is now President Clinton's Deputy National Security Advisor. And I had gone to her and told her, I think we can really do something in Northern Ireland. And she said, well, you're going to have to prove it because the president's not going to get caught up in anything. And I said to her, what if I got a seven-day ceasefire? And she said, that that would be interesting. So I put this proposal to Ted, a typical taciturn style. He never said yay yeah or nay, but just in silence almost drank his mind again. But they went for the idea of a seven-day ceasefire while we were over there. And with a lot of pickups and stops and starts and... All kinds of crises, we managed to pull it together. We were waiting anxiously every day. Would a bomb go off? Would something happen? But we also made a point of meeting everyone on every side. And I remember saying, we want to meet everybody. So I found myself in a room with David Trimble. I went and met Gusty Spence and the UVF, the UDA. We walked up and down the Shankill Road and saw the terrible deprivation. On the Protestant side and we met with Sinn Féin who said this was the beginning hopefully of a great relationship where they could break out of the box they were in, in in Ireland through the Americans becoming involved so we were playing for pretty high stakes.
1: I mean, incredibly high stakes. And that that week when you went there, I mean, unlocked so much because both sides were sort of proving themselves to each other. The sheer calibre of your delegation proved to... Sinn Féin, to the IRA that you were serious, and the fact that they were able to organise and hold a ceasefire, proved they were serious. I I suppose that the focal point, and people only knew about this from the sort of front of the story, not what was going on behind the scenes, was the visa that was granted to Gerry Adams, president then of Sinn Féin. It's worth reminding people the extent to which Sinn Féin were frozen out, famously in British broadcasting uh, outlets, you were not allowed to hear the voice of Jerry Adams or anyone else from Sinn Fein, his words would be dubbed by an actor if broadcasters wanted to use his voice. He wasn't allowed to travel. Then you know, the United States would not admit him, but as part of their sort of a policy against terrorism. But you made a real campaign behind the scenes, lobbying the White House, the State Department and others to get that visa for Jerry Adams. When it was granted, you know, I remember covering it. I think it may have been around the time of the visa that you and I first got to know each other. It was a massive story. Why was it so important to get that visa in the hands of Jerry Adams? And what did you have to do to get it?
0: Basically, the visa was the, the ultimate prize because it ended the isolation. Not only was Jerry Adams not allowed into America, he wasn't allowed into London. But we were going up against the British who were very confident that the visa would not be granted, were absolutely certain it would not be granted. And we played on that, secretly conducting negotiations with the White House at a senior level on what would be an offer if a visa was granted.
1: Until tonight, the Sinn Féin president was banned from the United States, but on Tuesday, he and all other political leaders in the North have been invited to address a conference in New York.
0: The visa battle was very, very tiring, it was the toughest time in my life I'm trying to bring together the language that the two could speak together even though they were both totally committed to the notion. It, was very, it would have been very easy to get tripped up in the language and to make a mistake. Adams in particular was spectacular in terms of how he managed to convince Clinton that this was a real thing, that this would really happen and that the huge risk that Clinton was taking Remember, the CIA was against him, the FBI, the State Department, the Speaker of the House. The British government was incandescent with rage when the visa was offered. And to his eternal credit, how many more may not have lived if Bill
1: Clinton had not offered the visa to Gerry Adams? But one way or another, that visa did come and there, thereafter, there was a whole lot of traffic between uh, Washington and the Republican movement, conversations that that led. Then to August 1994 and the announcement from the IRA of a complete cessation of their fight. The 300-word statement says that recognising the potential of the current situation and in order to enhance the democratic peace process, they have decided that as of midnight tonight, there will be a complete cessation of military operations and that all IRA units have been instructed accordingly. You know, where were you and where were you at that moment? And tell us how you reacted. And I was in the gym
0: of my hotel in Dublin because Sinn Féin had asked us to come over to be part of the celebration, really, of the announcement of the ceasefire. And I remember at noon in Ireland they have a prayer called the Angelus. And at noon, the Angelus bell rang out. And right afterwards, there was this sensational moment where a newsreader appeared and said,
1: After weeks of speculation, the long-awaited IRA well, ceasefire well, was, I was finally announced it, this morning.
0: The ceasefire has been announced by the IRA, and I just broke down. I'd spent so much time and energy on it. I'd done nothing else. I had ignored my wife and my kids and everything else to make it happen.
1: One way or another, it leads over a period of four years. Yes, there are obstacles, there are, there's violence, there's more bombings, there are deaths, failed attempts at ceasefires that come and go and are broken. But in the end, in April of 1998, they are gathered around a table in castle buildings in Northern Ireland, journalists like me and others waiting around the clock, losing sleep, wondering where this is going to Lead. What do you remember about the lead-up to what, in the end, we would call the Good Friday Agreement?
0: I remember 4:45 a.m. that morning, the phone ringing, and a voice telling me that it's done. There
1: was joy and congratulations, and also relief that a critical and difficult set of negotiations were at an end. There were farewells for the main participants and others less directly involved.
0: The tide had swept out, and a whole new tide was sweeping in, and it was called peace, reconciliation, hope, argument, politics like we, it should be. And obviously it's not there yet, but my God, there are probably an estimated five to 6,000 people walking around Northern Ireland who probably would have been dead by now if the
1: violence had continued. And many people who deserve credit, but we're focusing on the role of the United States. Your belief it was, is that it was that visa for Gerry Adams that in a way set in train the IRA ceasefire, which in turn led to the Good Friday Agreement. So that was crucial. And we've heard about your role in securing that visa. Other players would have been obviously the man chairing those talks, the former Democratic Senator George Mitchell. How crucial was he in getting the Good Friday Agreement signed and sealed?
0: Well, he was very, very crucial because every party in Northern Ireland, he was their listening post and they came in and they insisted on their opinions be observed and their initiatives be, be allowed. We had ten political parties, two governments and the chairman.
1: Uh, there were many, many issues. Uh,
0: I don't know how George Mitchell did it, but I do know at the end he did something very, very clever.
1: When I got the last word from the last party, uh, David Trimble, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, then the largest Unionist Party, telephoned me say they were ready to go. They had been locked in an extremely difficult uh, party caucus all day. They were the last ones to come on board. Uh, I called for an immediate
0: vote. The minute he got Trimble across the line, he called a press conference for 15 minutes later because he knew the way things were shaking out and what could happen in even an hour, that he had to get it across the line at that moment. That to me is a much overlooked, but wonderful deed that he did to actually bring the Good Friday Agreement to life, because we don't know what would have happened if he's,
1: another hour or two had passed. Yeah, and there you were in the United States when you got that call in the middle of the night. Did you have any role in what then happened afterwards, after the Good Friday Agreement was signed in, and, and be, you know it had to go to a referendum, obviously, of the people at North and South? Did you stay involved or did you watch from afar, slightly like that proud uncle who has played a role?
0: Yeah, I I basically watched from afar. Um, You know, it it was wonderful to see democracy come to Ireland. It's It's not total democracy. There's a democratic deficit, obviously, there now. But, you know, it's uncomfortable, it's bumpy, it's a sleigh ride, but it's peace.
1: a very good way of putting it. Um, looking back on it now, 25 years later, the Good Friday Agreement, besides the huge meaning it has for the people of Ireland and Northern Ireland in particular, as you've explained, it was hailed as one of Bill Clinton's finest achievements, perhaps his biggest achievement in his time in office. How, how do you... I know that you have perhaps have some contact with him, and I think you spoke to him fairly recently, but I mean, wh- how do you think he regards it and what place does it have in in his view of his own presidency.
0: It has a huge place. I mean, he's heading over to Northern Ireland for four days, and he is full of the joys of spring and the the idea that 25 years has passed and the agreement has stood. And he's he's not shy about calling it one of his greatest achievements. Indeed, Maureen Dowd, who you know well, wrote that the best two days in the political life of Bill Clinton were the two days he spent in Northern Ireland when Everybody gathered. i I'll never forget the crowd. The lining of the Christmas tree outside Belfast City Hall. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up and Bill Clinton was glowing. Absolutely glowing is the only word I can think of in terms of that. He had played such a great role in bringing that together. The genius of the Good Friday Agreement still remains its core principles of consent, equality, justice, respect for each other, and for law and order. These ideas are big enough to embody the aspirations, hopes, and needs of all the people of Northern Ireland. This trip to Ireland will be an important one for him because he doesn't want it just to be a farewell trip. He wants to actually help with the current situation and try and move it ahead by showing up. And of course, Joe Biden is, is also going over. So two presidents within two weeks going to Northern Ireland, which is an astonishing thing if you think about it. Really, and you know this very well, Jonathan, as you look around the world and you see what happened with the Middle East peace process and so many other
1: peace processes, you
0: say to yourself, my God,
1: Ireland did really, really well in the end. Just to step, zoom out a little bit and the wider relationship which we've talked about, do Irish Americans still care about Ireland and Northern Ireland in the way that you intuited, as it turned out rightly, they did 30 years ago and they did enough to propel their president to play a crucial role in bringing and brokering peace to the North.
0: The landscape has changed, obviously, but if you look at, for instance, Hillary Clinton's run for president, Irish-American groups raised three million for her, which is a large sum of money and obviously not as much as some other communities but we have people who contribute it's not knocking on the door like the old gangs used to do and uh, you know chicken in every pot now it's more like how can we help you in terms of your your social media or whatever and uh, how can we encourage you and pay you and and hopefully help you get elected
1: just to finish up neil we've been rolling back the years in this conversation On April the 10th, it will be 25 years uh, since we all saw those pictures of exhausted, drained, bleary-eyed, mostly men, shaking hands on that morning in Belfast. How, if in any way, will you be marking it, do you think? And how do you think you'll be feeling?
0: You know, there's so many things in life to work out and so many things that don't. And
1: the Irish peace process was
0: a tremendous honour to work on I knew people who died from the violence. I knew people who were scarred by the violence. I knew people who left Ireland because of the violence. And it's nice every now and then to pick your head off, off the ground and look around and say, you know, I'm, I'm actually very happy. I'm proud that I played even a little role. So I will really toast a glass of Guinness, and I will say well done to so many people, many of them unknown, anonymous people, who made it all happen. But I think that the major thing I remember is the fact that an American president moved the entire Northern Ireland issue forward to such an extent that he changed the complete dynamics of it. And that's how much we owe Bill Clinton.
1: Neil O'Dowd, thanks so much for talking to me on Politics Weekly America. Thank you, John. And that is all from me for this week. My colleague Joni Grieve will be with you next week. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtaraj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?